You can't just call yourself an ally because you think racism is deplorable. Allyship is not about what you believe. It's about what you do. We don't really need allies on the sidelines sending us good energy or cheering us on. What we need are accomplices. And people need to get out of being like, wanting to feel good about saying they're an ally. And they actually need to like pick up, you know, their, their energy and their bodies and their money and all the things and be accomplices who are going to stand up and work for transformation. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Kat Velos, author, speaker, user experience designer, coach, facilitator, and founder of Bay Area Black Designers, Silicon Valley's largest unofficial employee resource for black design talent. Her new book is We Should Get Together, a meditation on adult friendships and how to meaningfully cultivate them. Together, Kat and I spoke about her work, her writing, and about racism in contemporary society. She recommended a host of actionable steps we can take to be part of the solution. Here's my conversation with Kat Fellows. Let's talk about your book, We Should Get Together. It's about friendship and connection and the loneliness epidemic that has hit so many in our culture and particularly adults. Yeah, so We Should Get Together looks at adult friendship. I spent a lot of time researching the topic of adult friendship and loneliness and belonging and connection over the last several years. I'm a user experience designer and a facilitator. I've been facilitating for a very long time and so was really looking into what are the challenges that adults face when establishing and maintaining friendships during adulthood um, and what are ways that they can overcome some of those challenges. So it looks at the four biggest challenges, which uh, were hypermobility, busyness, relationships, and family, and establishing intimacy and closeness in friendship, and looks at large quantity of academic research, as well as anecdotal and qualitative interview stories uh, about people's real lives and their experiences uh, facing those challenges and working to overcome them. And as a designer um, of interactions, um, I've also got a lot of suggestions for activities and things that people can do to to, uh, assess how they relate to each of those challenges and come up with strategies that will work for them. All of this work was done, like I said, over the last several years, and the book came out in January of this year before the COVID pandemic. So Certainly there's new challenges associated with the pandemic and needing to keep distance. And so this spring, I released an addendum uh, with some suggestions that are for maintaining long distance friendships or friendships just with people that you can't see face to face. And that's called Connected from Afar. Yeah, so let's dig in a little bit to some of the challenges that come up for creating and maintaining friendships. You talked about hypermobility, busyness, relationships and family and intimacy are, are one of those prevalent over the other that you saw in your, your interviews with the book? No, it really depends on each person's life. And usually one or two will be more present in each person, again, depending on who they are. So somebody might be moving in and out of cities often or moving across town frequently or even moving jobs or previously, you know, having a lot of like long commutes and that kind of constant transiency would really interrupt their ability to make time and space for friendship. And for somebody else, it might be, you know, that they know a lot of people and they don't necessarily feel a challenge with hypermobility or busyness 
or even relationships and family. Uh, they might be single, they might be living on their own, but the friendships that they have are kind of, for lack of a better word, like too light. They're not getting to the depth that they really want to be experiencing in their friendships and that they're, you know, frequently seeing in movies and TV shows. We see these like close friends who are always a part of each other's lives and talking about meaningful things. But in people's real lives, when they don't have someone to have those kinds of connections with or to call when they're sad or that sort of thing, that's a marker of a lack of intimacy and closeness in a friendship. Your book, which is really wonderful, was actually released in, in January of this year, right? So b- before the pandemic, man, there's, this has really turned everything upside down. You mentioned that you've, you released an addendum connected from afar, which sounds really great. What are some of the strategies in connected from afar that can help deal with um, some of the issues that come up from us being so physically isolated from one another? Right. So a lot of cases, it has to do with the level of depth in a conversation that might be happening. So people might be in touch with friends, but just having very repetitive conversations about COVID or about the news or just like daily status updates about like, did you go for a walk or the grocery store? And I think, you know, regular check-ins with friends, it's important, you know, certainly to talk about these important things that are really constant and very present in our lives right now, but moving beyond that to allow each other to explore other topics and to learn more about each other as human beings is also a big part of it. So there's different kinds of conversational prompts that people can use to appreciate, to show gratitude for a friend, to show gratitude for maybe a memory or a reflection that you share, or it might be um, doing a creative activity together, like whether it's an art project or a writing project, or coming up with gifts of experiences to give each other while you're stuck at home in quarantine. There are ways to, in a way, like visit ourselves into each other's lives through the gifting of, say, a morning routine that you would like your friend to try for a week, and then they make up a morning routine for you so that we can be involved in each other's lives, even if we're not physically present. I would love if you could talk about the term parasocial uh, interaction and, and how that relates to sort of the way that we interact over social media and and whatnot. Right. So in my research, one of the interesting things I found was this notion of parasocial relationships. This comes from uh, the 40s and 50s. There was a couple of psychologists who noticed that when people were consuming a lot of media, particularly uh, TV or uh, music with celebrities, they were sort of developing an imaginary relationship with those celebrities or people that they were seeing frequently in the media. And so in the process of consuming data or exposure to certain people in a one-way interaction, it was creating this like false sense of closeness. And the correlation that I make in the book there is that I there's some concern I have that social media produces that same dynamic in people whereby consuming snippets of information about each other's lives via social media, whether it's an image or a tweet or a Facebook post or wherever people are at online, um, that they may be getting just like little bits of each other's lives via these platforms and then like thinking that you're closer to that person than you really are. So um, I encourage people to break out of that habit and to make sure that they make time for a real one-on-one connection or a small group connection where you can actually talk about the things that people aren't posting online rather than having this kind of false sense of intimacy that we can get by just observing each other. Yes, totally. So besides being an author and and an illustrator, you illustrated this book beautifully. It's really cool. Um, 
So in addition to being an author, you, you offer coaching and facilitation work for companies. Talk to me about your, your superpower as a coach. Like in other words, what do you do really, really well to help companies create healthy teams? So as I mentioned, I've been facilitating gatherings and programs designed to cultivate authentic connection between people since the early 2000s. And along the way, I also became a professional user experience designer. And so my superpower is really the blend of these two and having a really deep knowledge and experience with what types of interactions result in higher feelings of belonging and connection. And then I can design end-to-end experiences that deliver on that. Um, as I mentioned, I spent, you know, in the time I was researching and writing, we should get together. I've also, you know, added on to my own lived experience and like professional experience. I uh, did a lot of research into the academic research and scientific research into how disconnection affects people mentally and emotionally and physically from their lived experience and from each other. And so my coaching approach is really a multi-layered process that's informed by my expertise in all of those different areas. What percentage of your time is spent doing coaching versus user experience versus speaking versus authoring? Like, Talk to me about what your passion is uh, in this moment. Well, my passion is the same through and through, right? It's helping people have more fulfilling and authentic connection with other people, whether that's in a workplace setting, in their personal lives, or in the communities that they're a part of. And so uh, I don't think it's necessary for people to put themselves in boxes and say like, well, this is the only one way that I can meet that need, or this is the only one way to express a certain thing. I think that's really limiting. And I think it cuts us off from the wholeness of ourselves and the wholeness of our communities. It's really important to look at the topic of connection and the well-being of your social health across all those different spectrums. And so I don't say that there's like only one area that it's worth paying attention to. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, And on that topic of connection, in your book, you talked about creating a couple of meetups that were both really successful. One of them is Bay Area Black Designers. Could you talk a little bit about what Bay Area Black Designers is? Yeah, so this is a community that I started back in 2015 that is a combination of a professional development community as well as uh, just like social community for designers who are Black and living in the Bay Area. This was started out of my own desire to meet other Black designers. I didn't know that many at that time, and I really wanted to know more. And so I asked the other you know, Black designer I knew to invite his friends. Um, that he knew, he knew a few. And so we got together and I, um, as I mentioned, I've been facilitating community groups for a very long time. And so I wanted this to be a group that existed because I wanted to be a part of it. Like, and there wasn't, you know, any, anything like that, that I was looking for. And so as I grew the group, it's just grown organically over word of mouth. We started with five people in the summer of 2015. We now have over 500 members And uh, the group has grown all organically via word of mouth because there are other people who fit that description who are craving an experience of community and connection in a safe space that they're sometimes not getting from their company or via an employee resource group at their job. So um, this is an employee resource group that any Black designer in the Bay Area can join um, and be a part of it. That's really awesome. Thank you. So... Let's talk about diversity. As, as companies attempt to become more diverse, is there a danger of tokenization inside of that? Like, in other words, is there a danger of people of color being hired to fulfill more a stated goal or a quota? Is there a danger of them being seen more as a number or a proof of concept than an individual? 
Yeah, that's definitely a danger. And I think that that's going to be more likely to happen if the people in charge of hiring inside these companies are not seeing people of color as whole people who have as much talent and value as white people, you know? And so the answer is not to avoid tokenization by, you know, noticing that your team has no black people on it and not hiring any because you're like, well, I don't want them to feel tokenized. The answer is to A, like first investigate whether there's thinking in someone's mind that is white supremacist thinking that leads them to view people of color as not a full individual as not a whole and valuable person, as not another source of like talent and innovation and skill and value. And instead being like, oh, well, it's just a number. Oh, we, we have to have one. Like we have to have two. Like that's not the way to do it. It's to first make sure that you're not dehumanizing other people and to make sure that you're seeing people of color as whole people who have just as much to offer to your team as white people. And then don't just hire one person of color and then stop. Otherwise, you are tokenizing them. You should hire more than one person of color. It's been proven that diverse teams outperform homogenous teams monetarily, innovation-wise. And so it's like, this is just a better community within which to create products or create services that are more successful. I really appreciate uh, <laughs> the way that you're able to articulate this, these concerns, and I really appreciate your candor. Your blog post how to help your black friends and your non-black friends today was written on June 2nd, 2020. And this was really, it was one of the most powerful, useful pieces of writing I've read about what's happening currently here. And again, your, your candor and your honesty really come through. So in this post, you speak directly to a non-black audience. I want to ask you, what do you think are the impediments to understanding that that can come up for an audience that may not fully apprehend their own privilege within a culture built on systemic racism. Right. So for white folks, it really is going to take some awareness to like pause and look around and realize that the world that we inhabit right now was designed for your comfort and your success. And if that's the only world that you've ever known, okay, there's like some allowance made for the fact that you might not have noticed that because it's like a fish swimming in water a fish needs water to live and they're just in it and they're like, great, this is what life is. But that system privileges fish, right? Like if you submerge a bird, they're not going to do well because like water is <laughs> designed for them. And so uh, when you exist in a system that inherently privileges you, you don't have any incentive to spontaneously notice uh, that there, there's privilege there to bring that to your awareness. So to make another analogy, it's similar to the way that the world is frequently designed for able-bodied people and ignores the needs of people who may not be able-bodied. So uh, uh, many years ago, I broke my arm and I was in a sling and um, you don't notice until you can't use your arm how hard it is to do certain things in the world that way. Or when somebody has, you know, whether it's a temporary disability or through an illness or an injury, that navigating the world and doing the most basic things is suddenly much harder for you because the world is designed for people who don't have that temporary or permanent disability. And systemic racism is kind of the same thing. When somebody brings this to your awareness and you can look around and notice, it's like having the lights turned on and you really do have an obligation to look around and see what's happening. There's an anti-racist educator named Peggy McIntosh and she calls this the invisible knapsack. And in that bag are all of the privileges and preferences that were designed to benefit white people the most. You may not have noticed it, um, but once it's brought to your attention, it's not to like sit around and feel guilty that it's there, 
um, you, you have to pay attention to it and you have to work to dismantle it. But to willfully ignore it is to just enforce the racism that created that imbalanced system in the first place. Yeah, that's really well put. And f- for me, it's sort of like the lights have been turned on recently. I think this is happening for a lot of white people and a lot of people who, who would consider themselves previous to this not racist. And it's sort of like, oh... Oh, oh, and you're left in this uncomfortable situation where you're like, oh shit, I actually am going to have to do something rather than just think something for 10 to 15 seconds and then put it out of my head until the next thing comes up. And I think part of that is through articles like the one that you wrote being published or whatever kind of media that that people take in mm-hmm. it's it's sort of like if the message is compelling enough feels truthful enough feels real enough then it breaks through this this discomfort this shielding that has been brought up so again i really want to want to thank you for that for that post i want to ask you about the term ally what do you think about the term ally and the whole concept of liberal allyship well the first thing i hope listeners will Uh, take away or be willing to consider in this is that ally isn't actually a word that you can label yourself. It's only an acknowledgement that is conferred from the person who receives something they perceive as allyship, and they consider the other person's actions to be ally-worthy. It's similar to the title of a best friend, right? It would sound really arrogant or presumptuous of me to walk around and be like, I'm Sam's best friend. Oh, yeah, that's Sam. I'm his best friend. Only Sam can say that I am his best friend <laughs> uh, or like calling yourself a role model. Other people might refer to you as a role model, but it's, it just sounds like really arrogant and presumptuous to be like, I'm a role model or I'm your best friend and I'm an ally. It's like, well, are you sure? Um, ally is a title that has to be earned and it can be taken away when the behavior that warrants that title stops and ceases to to happen. So it's not a permanent label like being a Virgo or a self-conferred label like being a runner. And it's also a practice, like like a doctor practices medicine or people practice yoga. You can't just call yourself an ally because you think racism is deplorable. Allyship is not about what you believe. It's about what you do. And quite frankly, while we do need white people to do more to abolish racism, we don't really need allies on the sidelines sending us good energy or cheering us on. What we need are accomplices and people need to get out of being like wanting to feel good about having an ally, like saying they're an ally and they actually need to like pick up, you know, their, their energy and their bodies and their money and all the things and be accomplices who are going to stand up and work for transformation because racism is a problem that white people created. So white people need to be the ones to fix it. In the article, I outline a lot of other actions that people can do if they want to practice their allyship. There are small actions you can take. There are really big actions you can take. But if you want to show up in the world and earn that title, you can do things, right? So one is you can have conversations with other white people or not non-Black people. Like there's been a lot of conversations happening in the Asian American community, you know, and that's been super valuable um, because there is anti-Black racism among other ethnic and racial groups as well. Another thing you can do is to give money to organizations that are fighting for racial justice. 
you can talk to the politicians uh, and your city's mayor to eradicate racist laws and policies, to ask them to divert funding from the police department to services that actually help people, such as housing, mental health services, food security, youth service, services, all of these things um, are things that you can lobby for. And as a white person, you're likely to be heard more, more loudly, honestly, because of the systemic racism that's in our society. So don't get complacent. Don't give up. Don't feel like, well, I'm an ally because I agree that racism is wrong. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> like you, you need to go do things and you need to do them all the time until this isn't a problem anymore. And the other thing I would suggest is like to not like play dumb. And what I mean by that is when you, when somebody wants to try something new, whether it's learning to play the harpsichord or learning to travel to some other country that they've never done, they would do some research on it, right? You would read some books or you'd go on Google and there's information on everything under the sun. So it's not okay to say like, well, I don't know how to take action against racism because I don't know what to do. When white people want to do something about gun violence or school shootings or child abuse or climate change, they know how to take action. So don't say that you don't know how to take action against racism. There are hundreds and thousands of scholars who, and activists who have already created tons of resources to teach you how to dismantle racism. So just as you're eager about you know, any of the other causes or beliefs that you might have, if this is one of them, be an eager student and seek out that information and then do something with it. Thank you so much. Yeah, that is such useful advice and such, um, I don't know, it, it, it helps so much to receive this message in a clear, direct way. You might, always, you might almost think of like myself as being willfully stupid. I mean, maybe you, maybe you do already, I'm not sure. But it's like- Some people are. I mean, to be real, like some people are and some people are not, you know? Right. And it's up to the ones who are not to reach out and pull in the ones who are just like closing their eyes and being like, that doesn't exist. I'm not looking at it. I feel like there has been an impediment for me to speak to other white people like on social media or something like that because I'm afraid to look like I am virtue signaling and one of my fears is for other people to have like a greater knowledge of myself than I have like I'm I'm out there thinking that I'm doing something dope I, I think that I'm cool but other people are just looking at me and being like Come on, who who do you think you are? This fear of virtue signaling, like like what's what's your thought about if you saw me talking about the work that I'm doing? Would you just think that I'm somewhat clueless, or would you be like, huh, that's all right, thank you, you're helping? Well, I think it depends on like first off, like what makes you want to talk about that publicly? Is it to invite other people? to do something with you, to reflect on something together? Is it, is it going to lead to a deeper engagement that's likely to result in any kind of transformation for the people that you're reaching out to? Or is it just you know, a very quick way to like show off that you did something? A lot of this work doesn't have to be done on social media. It needs to happen in real conversations, like directly with other people one-on-one -on -one, or invite other white folks to join you in a Zoom call where like you're not on social, but you're having a conversation directly with each other about these things or you're enrolling in an anti-racism course together. I don't think there's anything wrong with reaching out to other white folks and being like, hey, join me. I'm signing up for this anti-racism course. It's like 12 weeks and I want as many of the white people I know in my world as possible to join me. I don't think that's virtue signaling. I think that's making an important invitation that 
quite frankly, many more people need to be making that invitation. And if social is how you reach people and you get high engagement there and you're likely to get a lot of signups there, then do that. But if it's just a way to like show off that you're doing the thing and you actually get more engagement and more signups, if you emailed people individually in private where people on social media can't see you, but if you message 20 or 40 of your friends one-on-one and said, hey, will you take this course with me? The world doesn't need to know about that, but you're still doing the work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Thanks for explaining in, in, in that way. So what do you think about this moment do, in, in terms of, do you believe it, it kind of represents a sea change? You see all these people are interested in changing the world or at least having the conversations. Do you think we're seeing the dawning of a new era of consciousness around race, class, white privilege, diversity, or does it more feel like this is a, a discrete moment? Well, I certainly hope that it's um, a sea change. I certainly hope that this is a dawning of a different era. But quite frankly, like me and other Black people are not the ones who will determine if that is true or not. Only white people can do that. Only the people who hold seats of power and who will change the policies that they enact in their cities and the conversations that you're having behind closed doors where there are no people of color there, like only those places uh, will determine whether or not this is really a change in this country. Because for people of color and for, and for black folks, like this is not new. We have already gone through this so many times in this country. And every time we're like hoping and pushing and like fighting for change and things slide back to normal because it's really comfortable for white people when things go back to quote unquote normal. And it's really not my place or any black person's place to, to say like, yes, this is, this is it. Like it's going to be different this time because really that's on white folks <laughs> to decide, is it going to be different this time? Is this going to be the last time we have to go through this or does it have to get way worse before things can get better? It doesn't have to if again, enough white folks decide like this is a priority. We can't have this anymore this, let this be done. Let this leave in this century. You know, like we're not doing this anymore and decide uh, to make those changes and transformations necessary so that it can be a change permanently. Yes. I'm listening hard to you and I'm like letting the gears turn in my, in my mind, just offhand, what would be the number one thing that you would want me to do? Like what would be to, if, if, if I was truly to engage in anti-racist work, what do you feel would be the most efficacious way to do it? Do would it depend on my own skill set? What do you think you could do? Well, I mean, literally just using the soapbox that I have, which is Voices of Esalen right now, I'm engaging in the conversations in a way that I hope is useful and constructive and sort of being a proxy for other people who might be in, in my position. And besides that, I'm trying to dismantle the way like my own brain the ways that i've become really comfortable with with my own white supremacy and to do that i'm i'm reading books and i would say besides that i haven't done that much so if you were to uh like 2x what you were doing now what would that look like if i was to add 2x to it yeah like if you were to double the effort that you're doing right now what might that look like um well i could i've made small contributions to uh, a couple of organizations and I could contribute some more money or some time and resources. And just piggybacking off of what you had suggested earlier, I could get in touch with 
with politicians. I, it sucks because I always want to do that, but, but don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then if you took that amount of things and you thought, well, what would happen if you double that? Like, what would it look like to show up in the world differently doubling that level of effort? Mm-hmm. What might that be? Are you asking for more acts or are you asking me to describe like how, my, how that might feel? Well, I'm saying this is, this, is a, this is a process that you can use to figure out what you can do, what you want to do. I'm not going to say what you should do. It's up to you to decide whatever, you know, uh, you, however you want to frame it. I don't know. It has to be framed as a should. Mm-hmm. But it's like, what do you want to do in the world to make your values real? And if there is more action that you can take that would make those values more real and demonstrated by how you live your life, then look at what you're doing and then see what else you can do. And then once you get to that level of proficiency, see what else you can do. And once you get to that level of proficiency, see what else you can do. So it's not like there's one set of actions. And as long as you do these three things from today until, you know, 50 years from now, you're good. It's like, no, like if you're leveling up and building a skill and getting better at something, in this case, dismantling systemic racism, then you're hopefully going to be gaining in skill levels as you go. And each time you get more comfortable with something or you tackle a greater challenge, you take on more, you know, it's like lifting weights or something. It's, it's, not, it's not just like, well, I can lift the 20 pound weight, so I'm just going to only lift that forever. It's like, no, like, <laughs> look at what you're doing. <laughs> look at how that aligns with your values and then keep going. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> Thank you. And I don't mean to make this like conversation about me. I know that's, that's like pretty annoying when it all of a sudden it becomes <laughs> about the white people and the white privilege. And they become, it's like you try to push the hegemonic culture out of the center and then it just sort of like creeps back towards the center so yeah let me let me ask you about esalen like or places like esalen where where do you see them located Mm -hmm. in the context of of white privilege or or white supremacist culture i have not uh been to esalen i know people i know many people who have been there and have talked about how white it is i have spent uh time at other retreat centers and either sabbatical or retreat myself and any kind of space like this, like I usually stand out a lot because it's mostly white people. And that's not because black women don't love going on retreats too. A lot of these spaces are not marketed to us and they also don't always make us feel welcome when we're there. So there's certainly a lot to be done to think about what is the, uh, systemic racism around healing spaces and why why are those not welcoming to more people of color in many cases it's because of accessibility like when you have people who are benefiting from generational wealth in a country that was built by enslaved africans and then you have programs that are so exorbitantly expensive it's like well probably only the beneficiaries of that heritage of unearned privilege and financial abundance will be able to afford a program at a place like this. And once they're there, they're going to feel very at home. They're going to see more people like them. They're going to see themselves reflected in the leadership. They're going to see themselves reflected in who's leading the classes and the workshops and all the other things. And so it's just like this environment that just feels even more alienating as a person of color when I'm in them, because I'm like, this was not designed for me and my comfort and my history and my experiences. And so I think that 
a lot of these healing spaces or retreat centers or uh, learning centers and all these sorts of things need to take a look at the ways that they're perpetuating some of these same systems and how they're designed and run and marketed and, and what the accessibility of their programs are and how good of a job or poor of a job they're doing with making sure that their spaces are welcoming and supportive for all kinds of people to thrive. What is it like for you to speak about race and privilege to a white or largely privileged audience? Mm, tiring, because it, it gets very tiring of white folks coming to black people to teach y'all about why you should care about racism or privilege or how to fix it. Um, it takes, you know, a bit of empathy to think about how you would feel if the shoe was on the other foot. And then with that empathy, you might see and feel and, and fully understand how wrong racism is and why action is, is necessary to help change that. And so I know that a lot of white people feel really awkward talking about race and privilege. Um, and there's also a lot of white people that you can go talk about race and privilege with and that you can learn from. I mentioned Peggy McIntosh, you know, Robin DiAngelo wrote uh, a book white, called White Fragility. Uh, there's here locally in the Bay Area, there's the Ann Braden Project in San Francisco, and there's a lot of other similar anti-racism programs that are specifically designed for white folks and taught by white folks uh, that you can certainly take part of now virtually from anywhere in the world. <laughs> All of these resources are there um, and available. And so, you know, black folks are, are getting really tired of being the one to teach folks about this. So, and, and to be fair, there are lots of black people whose full-time job it is, is to teach about this stuff. And so please support them abundantly with that. But also like, don't be lazy, like search on Google, read a book, read a blog. There's a quote I read the other day by Dwayne Reed, who says, if you have time to drink a glass of wine and watch The Bachelor, you have time to read a book about how to be anti-racist. <laughs> In quarantine here, people have used their time to learn how to make sourdough bread or to grow a garden or to figure out how to teach their kids. And so when you want to find resources about uh, learning something new or learning how to get better at something, use the exact same tools, like use the internet and have conversations with people in your life. I would love for, you know, if every white person read a, a book, like How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi, and then literally just did all the actions in the book until racism was eradicated, that would be enough. Like literally just read that one book. <laughs> um, or, or like I said, start with something and once you get proficient, push to a new level and get better at it uh, from a new angle. And so this is, this is not hard to research online. So Google it make an educated guess, research, learn, practice, ask the people in your life what worked for them and keep repeating and keep growing. Yeah. Yeah. That's really well put. Yeah. You, you spoke about this feeling of exhaustion in your blog post and it was so powerful. And I'm wondering, has the feeling of exhaustion changed since the time that you wrote that post? Has it gotten worse? Has it gotten more frustrating or has has it morphed in, in a certain emotional way? I, I'm not sure like what the angle of the question is. You're asking if I'm exhausted all the time. That's not sustainable. Um, and Black people shouldn't have to live in a constant state of exhaustion to justify why white folks should take racism seriously. White people should take racism seriously, even if I am joyful. If I am alive today and I am joyful and I am happy and I'm in a good mood, racism still matters at the same level as if I'm exhausted and grieving. And it's not a good quality of life for me or any black person to be in a state of exhaustion. Frankly, like living in this country and living under 
the thumb of racism for so long, it is exhausting and it is tiring, but that doesn't mean that 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 is how it should be and that is how we should live our lives and that that is the best way to use our human potential to go back to the human potential. It's like the potential of our lives is so much more and we all want to experience the range of emotions, including joy, including laughter, including boredom. Like I would love to just like be bored because I don't have to worry about racism anymore. It's like, but I don't, I don't have time for that. There's too many other meaningful things here to do to help humans like do more and be more with the lives that we have. What are the challenges inherent in speaking your own truth at this moment, if any? For one thing, it's, it's frustrating because it's frustrating to repeatedly tell people things that should be fairly obvious by now. It's like, if the buildings in our neighborhood keep catching on fire and we keep pouring water on them and people keep asking, how, do, how does one put out a fire? And like, what do we do to stop a building from burning when like the water is right there and we keep dumping the water on the building? It's like, don't, the questions like this are frustrating. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> like, are you kidding? Like pick up a bucket and throw some water. Um, and in, in our lives, that burning building is the continual murder and oppression of black and brown people in this country that is plagued by systemic racism. And the water is all of the anti-racist action that we need people to take on every single level, political, educational, economic, and conversational, just literally talking to people in your lives and in your families. So the world doesn't need you know, folks to come up with like new and more innovative ways to get rid of racism because all the strategies we had like didn't work. It's like, we haven't even tried all the strategies. We haven't had enough white people try the existing strategies to decide like if they worked or not. And so speaking my truth, I, I don't feel like there's a, a challenge inherent in speaking my mind. I am alive and I'm here to speak and I'm here to express who I am in the world. And so that's not frustrating, but it is frustrating to teach the same thing over and over because I would much rather use my creative energy to focus on other things, to think about other things and to do other things with my life. But when people don't take action or they're willfully ignorant, that leaves me and them and millions of other creative people trapped in this space, having the same like soul deadening conversation over and over again, when all we need is for people to take action to create a better world so we don't have to have this conversation anymore. Kat, how can listeners find out more about you and, and what you'll be doing for the remainder of the year and, and going forward? So anybody who wants to keep up with what I'm doing can hop on my newsletter, which is they can sign up at we should get together.com. That has all of the information about events that I'm doing, talks that I'm doing, certainly my books and, and coaching services are on there. Whenever I have like special news coming up or invitations that I'm inviting people to do, if they want to have like more meaningful, robust connections and conversations and friendships in their lives, this is where I'm doing all of that and where they can keep up with it. Um, they can certainly follow me on social media if they want to. Um, but honestly, getting on the newsletter is the best and most precise way to get info. I'm on Instagram at catvelos, that's K-A-T-V as in Victor, E-L-L-O-S underscore author. And I'm on Twitter at catvelos, all one word. And yeah, that's about it. They can reach out, they can read, they can talk to people in their lives, they can talk to their 
work their you know workplace they can have these conversations and like i said like i'm all about taking action my love language is acts of service so people do some things take some acts do some acts of service uh, <laughs> connect with me online like let's make it happen <laughs> kat thanks so much for for joining us today thanks for having me on the show sam Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Terry Gilby, Greg Archer, Shannon Hudson, and Kelly McKay. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. You can find all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast player, as well as at esalen.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contributions. <laughs>